Hey everyone, this is a bonus episode to celebrate AAPI Heritage Month. For all of you who have been turning in since last season, thank you for supporting the podcast. And to new listeners, welcome. Please follow us on Apple Podcasts and write us a review if you haven't. You can also write to me at celine.teoblocky at undertheradarmag.com. I would love to hear from you. Enjoy this next episode. You're listening to Under the Radar Podcast, where artists share their childhood memories, musical inspirations, and the milestones that help shape them and their music. I'm your host, Celine Teoblocky. Temple, it's obviously about being out and overcoming that internalized homophobia, but so much of it is also about overcoming my own internalized racism and kind of shedding all of that weight of growing up where I grew up, feeling that pressure to downplay or forsake my ethnicity. That's taken a really long time to to get over and to get rid of. And these are things that, you know, were very recently brought to my attention through my work with Pivot. During the last presidential election, Tao Win of Tao and the Get Down Stay Down partnered with Pivot, a progressive Vietnamese-American group that aims to empower its community. They were then keen to fundraise and help get their members out to vote. To that end, Tao had re-released Nobody Dies, a documentary that was filmed in 2015 when she visited Vietnam for the first time. She was accompanied by her mom, who had not been back since Saigon's fall more than 40 years ago. On that trip, Tao reconnected with her Vietnamese heritage in visceral ways as she performed concerts, visited ancestral temples, and met relatives for the first time. But it also brought to the surface unresolved issues with her estranged father. The trip ultimately led to her writing Temple, her fifth album. It was released at the start of the pandemic last year. As a child growing up in the white suburbs of Virginia, Tao avoided drawing attention to her heritage. Similarly, coming up in the indie rock scene over the last 15 years, she felt it prudent to not discuss it. Temple, however, puts it all front and center. So what changed? In this episode, Tao reveals her complicated relationship with the music industry, why she's finally comfortable talking about her queer identity, and how this all ties in with her now wanting to celebrate her Vietnamese heritage.
This is Tao Nguyen, leader of Tao and the Get Down, Stay Down, and our most recent album is Temple. Our album was due to release May 15th, but before that, you know, you're you're already releasing singles and music videos, so we'd already released one video, and then I remember that South by Southwest was cancelled. At that time, obviously, we didn't know how long it would be and how severe and devastating it would be. So we thought we would delay till the fall. At that point, all of the gears were in motion, so it didn't make sense to stop the release of the record. So we decided to proceed with the release of the album. And then the tour was pushed to the fall, and then it was pushed to whatever. And at this point, it's like 2022, spring of, you know, but who knows? I mean, I've transcended, I <laughs> this has gotten me closer to the Buddhist idealism I was brought up with. Now I don't know. I don't know if we'll ever tour again. But you've been really good at just sort of pivoting, right? And you did that video for now. Sip on joy, the purest drink Move to make, thought to think They can feel us from afar Avenues and boulevard And um, it was an amazing video because it just sort of captured the energy of the album as well as being able to work within constraints and just run with it thank you and you wanted to be the first as well we (laughs) we were like if we're not yeah no matter what we'll be the first so um luckily we had such a remarkable team working on that video and the shoot for that video was already scheduled in Los Angeles and it was going to be after we got back from South by. So once South by was canceled, we had to cancel that shoot. My manager at the time said, what if we moved? And it was always going to be a dance video. So he said, what if we transpose and just have it redone, have a dance video on zoom. There were two directors. One of the directors, Aaron Murray was the, choreographer as well just immediately started working because as you said we had that time crunch this was right when people were getting on zoom it was when people still had happy hours on them and we when it was well before the fatigue but we knew that that fatigue would come and also it was this very particular kind of energy it was before people became despondent is before I became despondent. And so it was just this very small window of time. And then the other director, Jeremy Sherlin Rue, was an amazing technical mind. And so he just went and learned everything about Zoom in like two hours. It just was 
a really incredible team. And then Aaron got the choreography together. We rehearsed all day in Zoom on Saturday. On Sunday, we shot the whole thing in Zoom for hours. And between the idea and the release of the video, it was about a week. So your parents um, were both refugees. This is sort of something that you've never really discussed in a big way till your maybe the last two albums and even more so with the more recent one. And I understand they met after the fall of Saigon and your mom was in Laos and she traveled to Guam where she met your father and then the both of them traveled to America together and then settled in Arkansas and then Virginia? Arkansas and then North Carolina and then Virginia. So what was it like for you growing up in your home? I understand you have a brother too. Mm -hmm. As a, a family that your mom and dad are both refugees, were you acutely aware of what it meant? You know, I wasn't. I... I knew that we were an immigrant family, but I it was not until a lot, lot later that the distinction between immigrant and refugee was where I, I chose to embrace it and really recognize it as such. Growing up, you know, this is Virginia. This is <laughs> it's Virginia in the 80s, and uh, I was born in 84. The pressure to assimilate or just... I think I, I remember us being quite separate from the neighborhood. There was a broader Vietnamese community, but we didn't live near other Vietnamese families. You know, my parents' friends would come around. It was tight-knit in that way, but also separate. I think everybody had a lot to manage, just making a living and raising their kids and figuring out how to navigate without drawing too much attention to yourself. You know, I... Looking back, I can recognize more of those slights and more of those disparaging, um, more uh, disparaging conduct uh, directed towards our family. But at the time, it was just very head down, work hard. Yeah. Do you have any sort of one instance that made you think, oh, maybe this is more than just something, you know, that people say that there is something acute that's directed at you? Um, I, uh, it's, it's hard to say because I don't know how much I participated in it, you know, that wanting to belong or else to just not be singled out was quite strong. Um, there's no way to not feel different or ostracized or just separate. Sometimes you hear about immigrant children and growing up and like wanting to eat certain things or, you know, uh, something that's peculiar mm -hmm. to where your family comes from. You don't want to bring it to school. You just want to have like sandwiches that what everybody else is eating. <laughs> I know a lot of um, Vietnamese kids growing up have experiences with fish sauce and yeah, I'm sure. You know, I, I prefer the school lunch even though it's so silly because now all I want is my mom's cooking and it's such a shame to have taken it for granted for so long and then betrayed not only your people but yourself and your stomach because you're like what you know what is this trash that I'm eating just to not draw attention to myself take a moment think back to when you were little you know what was something that just sort of 
made you laugh, just kind of gave you joy. <laughs> I loved oldies. I loved the oldies station. And music, even then, was the one thing that um, I could fully immerse myself in. Even before I started playing music, I, you know, I, when I was six or seven, I would turn the radio on. I didn't start playing guitar till I was about 11 or 12. But, uh, but before then, I just listened to the radio constantly, and I would make little mixtapes. And I watched ungodly amounts of television, and, you know, those, those shows brought me joy. <laughs> Do you have a, a memory of your childhood that you you don't like to think about that is, you know, something that brings you pain, <laughs> that you put it far away? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say my childhood in general is something that I, yeah, I would like to put most of it away. Uh, it was a turbulent house, you know, and I, I grew up with... Um, my my dad's presence in our in our family and house was was quite uh, destructive. So, um, yeah, m most of it most of it is something and you know you you kind of push on and and don't do, and you don't dwell on it. But that's why it was so important to be able to escape into television or into music. Mm -hmm. I watched the documentary Nobody Dies. It was a few things that uh, really struck me. One was um, the absolute joy when you sang and your uncles then started singing Country Road with you. The other thing that struck me was when you talked about your father and the jacket that he wore. In the film, Tao relates the story of her father often disappearing once for almost two years before he finally left for good when she was 12. One time, he had left his jacket behind, and missing him, Tao wore his jacket every day. When he did return one night, he saw her in the jacket. She breaks down in tears as she tells the camera that he told her to take it off and give it back to him. It's such a painful and vulnerable side to you. And it sounds like you yourself at the point that the documentary was being shot was still not quite ready mm -hmm. to face up to so much of that. That jacket, in the days that it was left behind before your father came back again, what did it mean to you? Did you understand anything of what was going on? I think I understood enough that I didn't want to think about it. And uh, yeah, it just was comfort and it was familiar. But And I think especially at that age when serious stuff is happening, it's hard to capture the gravity of it, but it's just a weight, right? Like you just know something is not right and you're not sure if it's ever going to be right. Um but I think that's where you, well, in my experience, I think that's where I just stopped engaging with it because you're, um, those kids are quite resilient, um, that you just figure out a way to continue to exist in the present moment. And 
That's all you can do. And then eventually you go into therapy because you have, you've developed all these weird muscles that you can't use in adult life. When you were younger, your mom was working in the laundromat. Mm -hmm. Did you spend a lot of time with her there? Oh, yeah. As soon as she acquired the laundromat. And, you know, it happened in a really sudden way because my dad had just left and he was the only one working at the time. He left us quite in the lurch. And so she was able to figure out this laundromat. Yeah, so I was there. I worked all weekends there. I was folding laundry. I worked the counter. I, I made change. I was the one that dispensed the quarters because we didn't have a change machine. She would go to the bank and get a ton of quarters. And then we had styrofoam cups and I would count them out. And then um, I would bring my guitar and sometimes a customer would come in and teach me a little something. And But that laundromat, that was her life and that was my life for so many years. And Oh, God, I'm so glad she's retired now because I it, it almost was too much to bear. She was there probably 16, 17 hours a day. And, you know, the things that she had to do, the what she endured, the indignities uh, that are attendant to washing people's clothes. They, you know, we had a wash, dry, and fold service. The way people talk to her sometimes, it just drove me insane. That's a tough position to be in when you're a kid and you can't defend your mom the way you want to. It's, uh, it's a tough one. Anyway, yeah, I was there all the time. I Now I can't. I haven't folded my own laundry since I, in my entire adulthood. I just can't do it. It, it just brings up so much. I used to have to fold giant carts full of like a five-person family, all of their laundry, and that was my entire childhood. You said you were about 11, 12 when you started playing music. Did you ask to like play the piano or, you know, did you just get a guitar? What was it that sort of told you that, okay, now I want to be a bit more serious about playing music? It was actually um, a guitar that my dad left behind. He wasn't a serious player, but he would sort of strum chords. That was, it, I mean, it was the only thing in the house and it was, we weren't in a position where I would be able to ask for piano. Well, there's no way you could have a piano, you know, and it, it didn't occur to me and it wasn't possible at the time to get lessons. So it was sort of very much what do you have on hand and what can you teach yourself? What songs did you start playing <laughs> initially? Um, the first songs I learned were and I know I remember this so vividly. By ear, I picked out uh, "Old Lang Syne," just the just single notes, and then uh, Don McLean's "American Pie," and then REM's "Everybody Hurts." And I played those three things over and over again, you know, ad nauseum. And were you singing as you played at this stage? I think shortly thereafter, once you can commit that stuff to muscle memory, it's easier to sing at the same time. But when I was first learning, it was more just muttering to myself to keep time. Yeah. And was it like also a way of connecting with the memory of your father? I don't, I don't remember thinking of him when I played. It was very much just, uh, it was nice to not think about anything, really, you know.
the beatboxing and humming, I just picked that up on the school bus going back and forth when I was little. That's just something I did to entertain myself. When I was young, my brother had a Fat Boys uh, cassette tape, and that was the first time I heard beatboxing. So I think it just lodged in my mind, in my consciousness, as a possibility. And uh, you were also like a pop country fan and a big Dixie Chicks fan. Was there any particular kind of music that you were gravitating to? Until I was in high school or college, I only listened to or had access to what was on the radio. So that's why there are so so many different realms of pop in that influence. Yeah, I think as I entered high school, the idea of becoming a songwriter, you know, I always loved to read and uh, I loved to write and write poetry as I was growing up. And then when I discovered the idea of songwriting and the idea of lyrics that would resonate and could be considered poetry, that was when... As a listener, I started to pay more attention to lyrics that I believed in and to songwriters who I believe had a certain respect for the craft and an interest in integrity in lyrics. Mm -hmm. The first songwriter I had access to was Bob Dylan, but the first one who had my heart was Lucinda Williams. She made me want to become a songwriter. I've always been a huge fan of hip hop as well, and... I would say MCs well before songwriters within the folk realm. I listened to MCs and really appreciated their cadence and their craft. So when was it that you sort of decided that maybe this is something that you could do as a career? And how long before you told your mom this is what you wanted to do? (laughs) When I was in high school, I started playing open mic nights. When I started Mm -hmm. writing my own songs... My sophomore year in college, I had wanted to drop out of college because I had, uh, I caught that bug and I wanted to just drop out of school and start touring. And then my mom was like, absolutely not. No way. And so I didn't, I didn't, I stayed in school and I graduated college. And then the week after I graduated, I went on my first tour. What did you do in college? I was a sociology and women's studies major. Tao released her debut as Tao Win in 2005. It was called Like the Linen, an ode to growing up in her mother's laundromat. Songs like Telemarks, those little lines of five we used to count down days, made up this charming folk-inspired clutch of songs that were essentially about heartbreak, but also gave hint to a turbulent childhood. A year later, a song of hers was included in the Kill Rock Stars songwriter compilation called The Sound the Hair Heard. For that summer tour, Tao would put together her first band. Our original drummer, this is ages ago, his name was Willis Thompson, and he went to school at William & Mary with me. And then I had, was doing an open mic night, and that's where I'd met Adam Thompson And he played bass, and then Willis played the drums. For that first summer tour, I asked them to be the band with me. This iteration of the band came to be known as Tao and the Get Down, Stay Down. They would go on to release We Brave Bee Stings and All. For the next couple of years, Tao would tour with the band and collaborate on albums with other solo artists. As her profile grew... 
the transient life of a touring musician would start to take its toll. In all that time, and you were doing a lot of traveling and touring, then you decide that enough of this rootlessness and you want to stay somewhere and just kind of ground yourself for a little bit. And you decide San Francisco. Why did you pick the Bay Area? Mm-hmm. You know, I've always loved San Francisco. And I somehow I knew, you know, because I grew up in Virginia, I knew how I would somehow end up in San Francisco. When I was in college, I, I spent the summer out here on a volunteer grant. A couple of friends of mine from high school, we promised each other we would end up in the Bay. It wasn't about music. I think it was the progressive political climate. I think it was being queer and being where organizers were. And I loved, well, now now it's tougher, but we all speak of old San Francisco. You decide to work with women who are incarcerated and in prison. I mean, what brought you there? Like, I wondered when I read that, I was like, is it just wanting to help people out? Or is it that kind of guilt of being a child of immigrants and refugees and your parents made it out of Vietnam? And whatever the issues, you've managed to live this life to be an artist, which is quite a charmed life. So was it wanting to somehow give back or what was motivating you to do this? Um, Well, the direct connection I had to the this group that I'm still a part of um, called the California Coalition for Women Prisoners was my housemate at the time and a really good friend of mine still um, is a very involved organizer and really embedded within that realm. And I happened to be home from tour for a longer amount of time than I typically was, long enough to get clearance and get all that stuff so that you can go inside. And so she asked me if I would join this group. And to your point about the motivation behind that, when I majored in sociology and women's studies, I my intent was to become a social worker or work more on the front lines within the realm of, you know, domestic violence prevention or whatever. And it was very clear to me that I didn't have the constitution for it. And I that wasn't how I was going to be most helpful. And so I think that the idea of being in service and of service has been with me for a long time and has shaped how I have wanted to conduct myself within my career. Mm. The thing in particular with becoming a member of CCWP and visiting people inside was the realization that so many people who are inside women's prisons are there they're survivors of domestic violence who perhaps are in for defending themselves. They're in for being accessories to crimes. And um, it could easily be people I know or could easily be people within my family. Like it, it just, so much of it is so mm. unfair and so racist and classist and sexist. Getting to know these women on her visits inside the prison was a powerful experience. It inspired Tao to write her third album, We the Common. She wanted to give voice to their stories and celebrate them. The lead single was dedicated to Valerie Bolden. Tao sings of the villain the courts wanted, but in reality, all they got was a mother of three children. 
If I burn my youth, would it come to me? Oh, love, won't you bat my eye? I miss the sweet garden men, baffle a skeleton dry. All they wanted was a villain, a villain, and all they had was me. All they wanted was a villain, a villain, so then they just took me. Another highlight of the album is Kindness Be Conceived. It's a stunning folk duet with harpist and singer Joanna Newsom. The gorgeous harmony of their voices holds a kind of optimism and speaks to the solidarity that as women we innately share with one another. Hold me hard Guilt for me that I've been a villain all my life. And if by a melody you stay and sway with me, I've been a salesman on the side. Can this be conceived? When we wake in the California light, there is a concrete stuck between how we breathe and why we die. Why we breathe and why we die Tao's next album, A Man Alive, would be one of her best. It was deeply personal about her estranged father. This she couldn't have done without the help of her friend and fellow musician Meryl Garbers from the Tune Yards. Garbers helped balance the grief and rage in the songs, sometimes amplifying these feelings with layered percussion and looped synths, other times adding syncopated, almost cartoonish effects. And on Meticulous Bird, Tao finally got to put her rap sensibilities at the fore.
going from we the common to like a man alive. There's such a beautiful kind of shift. The songwriting gets so hyper-specific and personal. And the fact that you can hear a little bit more of the kind of beats. There was a lot of hurt that propelled you to write this. What had happened in that time? I mean, obviously, like you said, you just put it aside and just got on with your life and, you know, and made beautiful music. And then suddenly you find yourself writing songs and they just all seem to be about this one topic. I mean, what had happened that had kind of changed for you? I think it was uh, many factors. One is... Artistically, I knew that I wasn't saying what I wanted to say because I wasn't quite saying anything. With We the Common, that was different. That was, to me, that's like a tribute album to this group of people. But I could tell that there were all these things I needed to write about and all these things that I had to purge from my heart and my consciousness before I could proceed to be a more open person and open writer. So I was reluctant to do it, of course, because it is so vulnerable. And then I knew I had to do a bunch of press around it. And the last thing <laughs> you want to do, and then I knew I had to perform these songs on stage. And you know, the, no one, it's hard, it's hard to go there. And it's hard to ask yourself. And your psyche to do that every night. But I knew it was necessary. It's like this ghost that had to be exercised and it's the only way it could have happened as a songwriter. Mm -hmm. I think I read somewhere that you had friends who were also dealing with older parents. It's just the age that you're at. Did you have that sense of like, would you go look for him? Would he come looking for you? Were those all things that you sort of grappled with? Um. I did grapple with that. And I thought it would bring, you know, part of the fear was what, it, what am I opening up? And what am I exposing myself to? But the reality of is that you can't uh, is th that I'm not saying people don't change. I'm saying in this case, it was all for naught because he has proven himself to be who he was and who he always has been. And so what I found was <laughs> I did it for myself and there's no other reason to have done something like that because if you do something expecting that it would compel someone else to be different, then you have to be prepared that it won't. And, and I learned that. In contrast to the hip-hop bounce of Meticulous Bird is Millionaire. It's quiet and tender but lyrically, she held no punches.
Vietnam in the lead-up to A Man Alive's release filled her with all sorts of conflicting emotions. When Tao met her mother's relatives for the first time, they all embraced her. But then she wondered if they would feel the same way if they knew she was queer. And then if the girlfriend she had left at home would ever be able to share an experience like this with her. In the street scenes around her of men gathered with their drinks, she was reminded of her father. All this brought to the surface memories she had tried to suppress, that the film captured. Writing Temple put into sharp focus what she needed to now do in order to move on. When they were releasing the documentary again, it sort of made you think that it took you like a year before you could even unpack everything that had gone on in um, Vietnam. And, and sort of then Temple really became about reconciling your queer identity and your Vietnamese heritage and, and sort of this reckoning that came out of your trip. I mean, what was it like as you were going through all this thinking, oh my God, this is going to be the next thing that I'm going to have to deal with? Uh, it was terrible. It was, again, I've known for a long time that my relationship with my dad and then also my queer identity would be two things that I would have to address in my music before I could proceed. And, but it was, yeah, no, it was, uh, it was terrible. It was a bloodletting because it had very little to do with my career because I'm in indie rock and nobody cares, but it had a lot to do with how my family would react to me being publicly out. It had everything to do with that. Part of that, you know, I have such a deep love for them. And part of that is I've experienced so much, obviously with my dad, so much estrangement and that pain <laughs> that I, I have never wanted to broach that pain again. I, there's never, I've never wanted to risk um, any more of my familial relationships. But, you know, it was a false, false choice. Mm -hmm. um, did it turn out to be as bad in the end? <laughs> Luckily, some things don't turn out to be as bad as you fear. <laughs> you know, it's um, what's funny is no one's really talked about it, but I feel so much less fear and distance that I just proceed as though we're cool. And you know, that's one thing about a lot of families is that you can do, <laughs> you can not talk about many many things and be okay. <laughs> And uh, I think once I was able to be okay with myself and deal with whatever internalized homophobia, whatever kind of bullshit that has been laden, um, that's been such a burden that um, I feel so free. And in that lightness, I can interact with them however I will. And yeah, and, and then, you know, the pandemic happened. And so there are a lot bigger, <laughs> there are bigger fish to fry. So nobody, nobody's worried. <laughs> anymore and you have less family gatherings where you that's have right. to deal with those awkward that's right. silences yeah. <laughs> less questions to dodge yeah temple the actual single uh, is told from your mother's point of view it's so vivid even before i knew what it was about i was like oh it was already like 
playing those images in my mind of, you know, those old black and white reels at the top of the embassy and the helicopters. That one song is really like a celebration of Mm -hmm. who she is and who she was at the time when she had to leave Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, Vietnam to go and then, you know, lead this completely different sort of life. How did she feel about all that? Or was she kind of awkward about it? (laughs) She wasn't awkward, but she is pretty stoic. Uh, She said, I like it. That's what she said. And I didn't expect more than that. But I believe that so much goes unspoken. It's funny, she's given so much of herself over her life and over my life that I, I don't feel the need to ask her for more than what she is willingly giving. She's so generous and so warm in so many ways that, I mean, I just don't know her to be any different th- than that. And, and I don't I don't need her to be. And, you know, those glimpses that she showed when we were in Vietnam were enough for me to make this song for her, to live in tribute to her, you know. And it's a lot to ask people to, to revisit things that they've put away for very good reason. I don't know that she needs for herself to revisit anything, and I don't need her to either. Mm. My darling, your patience rained on me. I know daughters of marauders are just so hard to please. Tao had mentioned the trauma from her past and how it had left her with all these muscles she couldn't use in real life. On the song Marauder, she goes deeper into this idea. A marauder being someone who roams and plunders, destroying everything in their path. It's not only a reference to her father, but also to her own inability to deal with her past and how that was impacting the people in her life. Orders is a is such a lovely song, and there are actually quite a few love songs in there. Mm-hmm. But I think we kind of take it for granted in sort of like cis heteronormative relationships. How something so small as like being able to openly express your feelings to somebody you love, mm-hmm. it can be so difficult. And for yourself, even beyond the kind of questions of sexuality and gender, it's like you then you have your conservative sort of Asian values you know you have respect and filial piety and also performing gender like to be the girl you have to be the one to get drinks when someone comes to your house and serve people and those are certainly good values to a certain extent but then there can also be so stifling what was it like for you to finally be able to put it out there for yourself even if you know your dress I guess you always knew that perhaps maybe no one in your family would say anything to you mm-hmm. yeah because <laughs> they probably wouldn't listen to my music anyway but as you said it's such a small simple thing but it it is like one of the gifts of being alive I think it was just so nice to be alive in that way I could stay let Left to 
in the string of tiny desk concerts that were held at the homes of guests because of the pandemic, artists were also invited to say something about a song that might have taken on new meaning in these times. Tao talked about anti-black racism among Asian Americans. She gave props to the black civil rights leaders who initiated these changes in immigration law that would later directly benefit Asian immigrants to the U.S. Can you talk about the fact that you now have a platform and you're sort of very actively engaging with it? You know, what's funny is I definitely embrace whatever platform I have a lot more since I've circled back to my heritage and the Vietnamese-American community and the Vietnamese community. And that's because I of this group called Pivot, which is a progressive Vietnamese-American group that I sort of teamed up with a lot over this election period to get out the vote, specifically in Vietnamese communities and then in broader Asian-American communities. And having a place where I could be openly queer with Vietnamese people, which blew my mind. I, I, didn't, know, I, I didn't know that was possible. <laughs> And to um, be in solidarity with people who had the same values, who had similar progressive values, it just has really opened up my willingness to be more out there. But honestly, I had to overcome when I, you know, this temple, it's obviously about being out and overcoming that internalized homophobia. But it's so much of it is also about overcoming my own internalized racism and all of uh, kind of shedding all of that weight of of um, growing up where I grew up and and having the pressures to or feeling that pressure to downplay or or forsake my ethnicity um, and that's taken a really long time to to get over and to get rid of and these are things that you know were very recently brought to my attention through my work with Pivot where I just started and you know I hope that in that tiny desk it's clear that I'm only starting to engage in this way within the Vietnamese community within Asian American community of like what is it in you know to talk about race to talk about how we are complicit in this hierarchy of white supremacy and to address like really blatant racism um, and anti-black racism within the community that we all know happens right. and no one says anything because you can't, you know, you don't question your elders and you don't talk back and you, and you don't challenge them. Mm. During this time, I started seeing a lot of friends and, you know, people that you follow on Instagram who are speaking out to Koreans for Trump and things like that, you know, going out to these events or speaking to their families and saying, have these conversations with your, your parents or your elders. It's such a, a wonderful thing to come out of this horrible time of reckoning where we can't look anywhere else, mm -hmm. right? Because now we can't go to work and rush and finish some deadline. We have to really sit and look at it mm -hmm. on the screen and, and like find out and really mm -hmm. deal with it. Yeah, and we have to, you know, deal with the consequences of not dealing with it. Yeah, it just to consider that, you know, if you don't do your part, then he gets reelected, you know. That was terrifying. It was just a great motivator. Sip on joy, the purest drink, move to make, thought to think, they can feel us from afar, avenues and boulevard.
Love the song itself. I have to ask. It's like I love the kookiness of it, and there's this bit where you say, where it just reminds me of that something like a phenomenon, that kind of white lines riff. Did was that like intentional? The initial seed of that song was、um, those layered guitars. There's a riff that happened at the end, so I built that beat around those guitar lines. And then when I was listening to those guitar lines, I did. Yeah, it, at first it was a, just a kind of a placekeeper, a placeholder. But of course, you know, it's a nod to the LL Cool J song. <laughs> What I wanted was for Phenom to be clearly the successor to Meticulous Bird. I wanted to capture that kind of rabid energy and fury and aggression. To have that line, but I am an old phenomenon. To have it build to that was、um, one of the original intentions for the song. But what does it mean? But I am an old phenomenon. To me, it's this magical realism, but it's also like honoring the resilience and energy of women and nature and women as the highest embodiment of majesty. It's something almost Shakespearean. About it, there was something about that that tied into the documentary for me. When the the filmmaker says to you, he described you as like a wild animal on stage. Your response to that was like, "Oh, that's a perennial direct response to、uh, the house that I grew up in." And、uh, there was something about that song that connected for me. You know, and I was like. So there is something about you know women at home and and there's a, there's a violence to it, but there's also like a way we make sense of it and grow out of it. Totally, I, yeah, I agree with you. And you know, I also was envisioning、uh, women as the protectors of society, quite a specific power and specific resilience that that takes. So with nobody dies,、uh, having it re- be sort of available to everybody on the internet, just like that, <laughs> you had to like okay, whatever was in there, you know, that you may not have felt was perfect at the time, it's now captured. It's on film. It's going back out there, and you were also using it for pivot, right, to right. get people to to get out there and, and vote,、um, and so you were using this pain for like this greater good. Which is, I guess, a lot of what art is about, anyway.、Um, when you had to write the sort of preface to it, what was going through your mind? I knew that I couldn't have it out there if I didn't try to capture what I needed to capture in that preface. And as you said, yeah, I, it was f- to raise money for Pivot. It was to raise money for Get Out the Vote. Efforts in these critical swing states, and if not for that, I wouldn't have done it because it just—it's a lot, you know. And I actually don't know how much longer I'll keep it up on, on the site because it—it、um, 
there's only so much that I want to <laughs> just float out there indefinitely. You know, it was a means to an end. I knew that there was within this realm, it, there was a healthy enough appetite for it that I believed we could use it to raise money. And people have been asking about it. And also, you know, it captures my mom so lovingly. That part is almost enough for me to be okay with everything else that is in there. I just love the way she is in that. And I love that you can see her with her sister and with different family. While the pandemic has derailed tour schedules, and along with it, the livelihoods of many in the music industry... Tao is grateful for the silver lining that this time off has afforded her. You know, I feel quite fortunate that I can make music and and that it's okay to be not touring. It's funny because when I began, it was just me and a guitar and it was about the craft of songwriting. It wasn't about making records. And luckily enough, I've, I've been able to have a career in music, but that means making records. It means having to rely on a lot of other people because you don't have the experience or the education or the background. And I've been picking stuff up as as the years have gone on. But when you tour so much, you actually don't have, you know, one, you don't really have a home. So I never could have my own studio and I never had any gear. And whenever we went back to make a record, then it just was this incredible time crush, you know, where I didn't have enough songs, so I'd be rushing to write the songs. But then I'm relying so heavily on a producer or so heavily on my bandmates. And if you keep doing that over time, you start to believe you can't do it. And I had fallen into that where I didn't believe that I could do it. But now it's amazing to start building these skills and just have the confidence that I can learn and expand what I'm capable of. When you don't have the time to learn, and you, but someone else already knows, then you just always go to the person that already knows what to do. But that means that you are never that person. And honestly, I've never loved music more than I do right now. It feels like when I was first playing guitar and writing songs before I knew anyone would hear them. And it's been a, <laughs> it's been a long time. I, I feel so light and like a fan and student of music again. It's more now like I get to make music and and if anyone chooses to listen to it, that's fine. And if they're if they don't, that's also fine. And I've led my life and my career with priorities have had gotten quite muddled and the reasons I was making music was to see if, you know, people would like it. And that's never, that's never the way to do it. With A Man Alive and then with Temple, I've been getting closer to that freedom again. And now I'm doing so much more on my own because that's what is available. But I'm I'm learning so much more about engineering and production. And it's so liberating and fun. <laughs> and I think anyone who knows me would be quite surprised to hear me say that because it's all it's been such a it's such a weird and sometimes toxic relationship I've had to having a career in music. Travel so lightly cause I was a fraction of Pure 
You've been listening to Under the Radar podcast featuring Tao Win of Tao and the Get Down Stay Down. This episode was produced by me, Celine Teoblocky, and executive produced by Mark Redfern. Additional editing was provided by Azane Samari, with media and graphic design by Jenny Woodward. Under the Radar is a nationally distributed print magazine and website founded in 2001 by Mark and Wendy Redfern. You can find us at www.undertheradarmag.com. If you can, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash under underscore the underscore radar. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. If you like this episode, please rate the podcast and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us so you don't miss an episode. Till next time. Do it, they